0: Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing awareness to ocean life. My name is John Sherbin, the show's producer, and our host is Dr. Colleen Beelitz. Today, we welcome brothers Dan and Greg Martino of Cottage City Oysters. They first got into oyster farming after taking a tour of an oyster farm. Dan and Greg set out to get a farm of their own, and in 2014, they were granted the first oyster farm in Oak Bluffs history, and the first open-ocean oyster farm in New England. Named after the original town name for Oak Bluffs, the Cottage City, Cottage City Oysters was created in hope of growing the best oysters in the most eco-friendly, sustainable way. Let's get into it.
1: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. For season two of our Blue Earth Podcast, we now include businesses involved in growing the blue economy who are also stewards of the ocean. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to brothers Dan Martino and Greg Martino, owners and operators of Cottage City Oysters. Hello, Dan and Greg, and welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure. Uh, One of the first things I like to ask people is how their passion began. And I believe that starting this business was a career change for both of you. Uh, Dan, you were in TV production and you were filming a show on the Billion Oyster Project. And for anyone not familiar with this project, the Billion Oyster Project is a citizen science program coordinated by the New York Harbor School with the goal of restoring one billion live oysters to New York Harbor by 2035. The project aims to engage hundreds of thousands of school children during its lifetime in marine restoration based STEM education programs. So, Dan, can you do me a favor and provide a little bit more detail on the show that you were recording and then the impact that it had on you to bit to pivot into this field?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so that's right. I was hired as a TV producer cameraman um, to to film the, the project. And it was really uh, I don't even think they were started yet up and running. Um, I think this would have been back in like 2012 uh so i remember you know it, it's on governor's island in new york and at that time it was a pretty uh private island you had to have permissions to get on it and uh you know we went and viewed the buildings and they were like dilapidated and they you know they didn't have kids in them yet they, they were still trying to fix up this place and um met pete malinowski and he was just a super enthusiastic really cool guy really smart man and um he was like the proud parent when he showed us these baby oysters and i had never really eaten oysters up to that point um greg and i grew up in texas so the only time we had oysters they were fried on a po' boy or you know grilled on a grill and, I, and it never really connected with me that oh right this this oyster is like a living animal that can potentially be farmed and then and then really what it was is I was originally drawn to the ecosystem services and the carbon sequestration powers of oysters which is why you know they've been chosen for the billion oyster project and then it was just learning from that and then going to his parents farm which is fisher island oysters uh they own that farm and then going there and learning about how people can farm oysters and how you can make a living on this and how It's the most sustainable form of protein farming on the planet. It uses no fresh water and you don't have to feed them anything. They're actually extracting nutrients out of the ocean and kind of just wrapping my head around it all. You know, I, I wanted to contribute in some way in my life to climate change and, and trying to combat, uh, you know, the effects that humans have had negatively on the planet. I felt at the time, like I was doing part of this through TV production by making Programs that would help educate people, but was really kind of looking for a yin and a yang in my life, you know, sitting behind computers and, and cameras and technology. But I also wanted to be in the real world, especially living on the vineyard, um, you know, wanting to be outside more. And oyster farming just checked off every box for me that I could help the planet, I could help feed people in a sustainable way, I could be outside, I could work with my brother, could potentially make some money doing it. Uh, So it sounded like a a win-win.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you said that because a lot of people, when they're inside a lot and they miss that connection with nature, this kind of gives you the opportunity to do that. And, Greg, I had read that you were working in Texas at the time in finance and that your brother got you to come up to New England. And you had mentioned when we had spoken about working on another farm and catching the bug to do this. So can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you, and tell us a little bit about 3D Ocean Farming.
2: Yeah, so I had graduated school, SMU in Dallas, Texas, with a finance degree um, with a minor in accounting. So I was destined for like banks or um, financial firms. And, you know, I came up here and visited Dan. This was way before the oyster farm and, and kind of fell in love with the community of Martha's Vineyard, which when you talk to a lot of people called Washashores ashores is the name of us, uh, those that are not born here, but move here, it's kind of that same type of connection. And as you dive into the community, you start to realize how important fishing is to this community, which then led us obviously to um, finding and working with oyster farmers that are already here. And that aha moment of, you know, going out on a boat, kind of learning the industry from the very beginning and seeing market oysters come out of the water two and a half to three years later, where all you're doing is really harnessing mother nature, right? It's zero input, no fresh water. You don't feed the oysters. They're filter feeders. They're basically extracting all the nutrients that they need to grow uh, right out of the water column and producing protein while also sequestering carbon within their shells. So, you know, when you start to kind of Travel down the rabbit hole of oysters. It seems so simple, but it's really just magical. And that kind of propelled us into thinking about well, 3D oyster farming, right? Or 3D aquaculture. And what else can we grow? You know, why are we just growing oysters? We have a site that's in the open ocean, which allows us to have a lot of flow. We have about 20 to 22 feet of depth on our site, which allows us to grow suspended seaweed. And, you know, we can kind of use the X, Y, and Z axis of the farm, which means growing stuff on the bottom, growing stuff on the surface, and then kind of dangling um, from suspended lines down in the middle there. So you can really maximize, you know, our site is two acres, we're actually expanding and doubling that, but you can really produce a lot of food and a lot of change uh, to the ocean there. And Bren Smith was a big... uh, mentor for us and influence for us when he started doing his 3d farming concept we were not that far behind from him actually we um were just had our oyster farm going we wanted to experiment with kelp and we just saw an example of what this person's doing and a concept that really worked for us too so uh you know brent smith from greenwave we reached out to him and he had nothing but positive um you know things to say and advice for us and that kind of led us on the 3D uh, farming path. And now we're experimenting with surf clams and scallops. We've been growing sugar kelp now for uh, roughly four or five years. We were the first commercially permitted seaweed farm in the state of Massachusetts. And so it's been nothing but um, just growth for us and wanting to experiment and see one, how much food, good food can we produce but also how much change can we create with biodiversity and, um, you know, ocean acidification remedies and carbon sequestration, like these type of items, how good can we leave the water um, as we're continuing to farm her?
1: Yeah. And I think that's an important point to make, you know, because we want to make the oceans better for the next generation. And you and uh, Dan and Greg, we're all parents of young children. Dan, you have little ones. Greg, you're expecting a little one very soon. And as parents, I mean, what do you want life to be like for your children when you look at the oceans? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: You know, obviously, my hope is to leave the world a better place than it was when I got here. And I, I know that sounds cliche almost, like that's what we all hopefully want. But then you start thinking about, well, how can you actually do that as an individual in your life, right? Um, and I, I, think we felt that this oyster farm was the most tangible thing we could do that would have a, a large impact, you know, as, as large of an impact as we could have. And so that's really why we dove into it. You know, one of our mottos is create the world that you want to see. It's like, instead of just waiting for things to change, you need to go out there and make, make them happen. And that's where, and and, and Greg and I like to push ourselves a lot, like personally in our lives, um try to get outside of our comfort levels we we feel like if we're if you're comfortable you're not growing you know you need to be uncomfortable at all times that way you're pushing yourself kind of the limit and growing that's you know that was we had no we had zero boating experience when we got into this you know we actually even had to get a boat like we we were the most unprepared individuals possible (laughs) uh year one was literally being seasick uh just trying to get our sea legs together you know but again we're having a lot of fun and and we feel like it is one of those unique occupations that benefits the planet uh you know more than the the harm that it does and so that's that's important and i'm i'm looking, hoping my kids will will jump in with us
1: yeah and greg how do you feel are you you creating this next generation of uh farmers now
2: Yeah, I hope so. Whether, you know, it's our own kids or just inspiring local kids or someone reading our story on the internet, you know, um, we've had a a great opportunity to take in younger generations and and teach them and kind of show them the business and and watch them go off and get their own farms. And that's what we want. That's how you grow an industry. And that's how you ultimately create change and uh, change the way people are thinking also. And so that's all we hope for, whether it's, you know, our own kids or people that we inspire or even just help with advice, which, you know, it's often we'll get an Instagram message or an email that's just saying, Hey, you know, I, I saw you guys and what you're doing. It looks awesome. I'm starting my own farm. Um, any advice, where do you get your cages or where do you get your gear? And we're an open book when it comes to that type of stuff. So as long as we're continuing to push this industry forward. Shellfish aquaculture and specific seaweed aquaculture as well. Um, This is the right move just because of the benefits that it adds.
1: Yeah, and it definitely is a benefit. And I want to say one of the great things about your farm is the fact that it's also an ocean sanctuary for some species as well. And we know that research has shown us over and over again that given a chance, ocean life can come back. We just have to be willing to give it time to heal. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about this and how it relates to your farm
0: yeah we um so when you when you get an aquaculture farm uh, in Massachusetts, it's different in every state. but in Massachusetts, uh, we cannot own the water the the water is a public right. so when you're deeded a farm, we actually rent that ocean from the from the town from the state. Um, and what we're renting is the commercial rights to harvest from that section of ocean. and that's important for two reasons. One is that you know you want to make sure that the recreational users can still use that ocean body of water. So, you know, people sail in our farm, people can fish in the farm. You can, you know, you can use the farm. Um, And then number two, when you apply for a license, the state actually comes out, they scuba dive your proposed area and they look at catch histories and they want to make sure that that part of the ocean was not used or has not been used for commercial fishing. The, they don't want to replace fishermen with farmers. They want to put farmers in new areas. They want to grow, you know, the industry, not at the expense of the fishing industry. Um, so when we're deeded the ocean, essentially what happens is we're the commercial enterprise now that's allowed to commercially harvest this area and commercial fishermen are now not allowed to harvest in this area. And so in essence, it's 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 setting up an ocean sanctuary for every species of ocean animal that wanders into the farm it's like a safe zone and so what we find is you know you put these oyster cages down which are four foot by four foot by four foot giant uh boxes in essence with lots of little nooks and crannies in them and it just becomes like a shipwreck underwater um you know instantly you get baby lobsters and we have eels and crabs and um one of the coolest things we see is, is baby codfish, uh, which is something that I I knew there had been cod, obviously Cape Cod, and that's what this area is known for. But we see baby codfish now in the gear, and so that's, that's really hopeful. And what's neat is we know that it's not gonna get destroyed. We know as long as we keep farming this area in the way that we are farming, uh, these animals are gonna have a place to spawn and and create new life there, but also for the babies to kind of hang out there. Um, so it's neat in that sense.
1: And you were talking about, uh, you know, your cages. And I think a lot of people are curious, you know, as an oyster farmer or scallop farmer, uh, you know, where do you get your seed? How do you go about it? Greg, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, that uh, for our listeners that are interested, but aren't sure how to go about being an oyster farmer.
2: So where we get our seed from is a place called they're called hatcheries and they're kind of like greenhouses. So, so basically what it does is it imitates an environment in a controlled uh, setting where the temperature is controlled, the salinity is controlled, the base of the water, you know, how acidic it is, the pH is all controlled. And so ultimately what they do is they spawn oysters in February or March, when it's very cold outside, very cold in the water, especially here in New England. And they will create millions and millions of of spat. We get ours from Muscungus Bay in Maine. That's the hatchery that we get ours from, as well as Island Creek here in Massachusetts and Arc on the Cape. And so ultimately, they simulate a very warm environment because oysters actually spawn based off of water temperature. Once the oysters spawn in this controlled environment, uh, they all settle and that actually creates the single oyster set. Now this was revolutionary uh, back in the day because oysters wanna cluster together and actually create oyster reefs. So if you're ever out in the wild and you see oysters, they're all stacked on top of each other. They don't look pretty uh, and they're pretty much impossible to shuck. So that single oyster set was very important for the aquaculture industry because that is where the majority of oysters get sold are to restaurants for the raw bar, the single oyster. So we end up getting the oysters in around June. And by that size, from March to June, they're about two millimeter, the width of your eyelash or a period in a sentence. Um, They're very, very tiny. So When you get them and they they FedEx them, it's it's awesome. Um, And cheesecloth, like wet cheesecloth, you get it and it's the size depending on how many you get of a softball or you know could be upwards to a basketball size. And that can be five hundred thousand to two million depending on what you're getting. So that actually arrives FedEx and we rush them out to a nursery system where they'll actually grow from that two millimeter in size. To roughly half an inch to three quarter inch to where we then plant them in our cage infrastructure on the farm. So, that process alone, just to get the oyster, is a whole separate business. The hatchery business is something that is very important um, and can actually cause bottlenecks in our industry, which is why we don't always buy from one hatchery. Um, the other reason is because of genetics. You know, some people breed different genetics into their oysters. Uh, there's actually some hatcheries that breed black stripes down their oysters other hatcheries breed growth into their oysters so that's all from the brood stock or the parent oysters that they're breeding these traits over and over and over again that eventually uh get into the seed and you can find different hatcheries that have different traits and ultimately then either give you better growth or um, a different trait based on the the farm and your site that you're growing.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so fascinating that you can actually be able to grow a particular oyster that has like a particular stripe on its shell. And I know that you both had talked about getting uh, kelp from Green Wave as well. And uh, so how do you experiment with what grows best in your area with the kelp and the oysters and the other stock that you grow on the farm?
0: It's really just trial and error. Um, When we started the kelp, we were actually a part of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute's research program. Um, So the first license we got was a research license um, to grow kelp in the state because they didn't yet have a commercial license. Um, So we actually had to work with the state to make that commercial license possible. But we started with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and the Martha's Vineyard Shellfish Group. Um, This was 2015. Uh, to deploy kelp on the farm, and then through that we learned about Brent Smith and Green Wave, um, and believe we tried one of their spools out in 2016. The following year, and that's really when you start to see. Well, you know this this type grows better, and this type grows better, and it's the same with oysters. Um, You know, we get our seed predominantly from Maine, and the Maine oysters grow great where we are because it's a little bit warmer and they love it. And if we were to bring up Gulf of Mexico oysters, uh, they would probably hate our waters because it would be too cold. So there is a lot of, you know, you want a a species that's near your area because the, you know, the the minute differences actually make a a big difference upon, you know, when you place them in the environment. Um, And then, like Greg said, just talking to Brandon at Greenwave and and learning from them, and now they actually allow us to choose different strains. Um, that's where we're at in the industry now is, you know, does a Rhode Island strain grow better than a Connecticut strain for us? And so we're trying to figure out uh, which strains are better for our area and and that's what's neat about Greenwave is they're doing that for every farm, you know, kind of across the nation right now. Um, so we're all trying to find like what what works best.
1: Yeah, and I know that you're working on something else as well. We had Dr. Emma Cross uh, as a guest on our show uh, from Southern Connecticut State University, and I know you're working with her and a number of others, and you're trying to create the first eco-label using eDNA. And for our listeners who are not familiar with this, as living organisms move through their environment, they shed genetic material in the form of DNA, so that could either be mucus secretions or feces or whatever it may be. And environmental DNA, or eDNA, is the DNA that is collected from a variety of environmental samples, such as seawater. And as these various organisms interact with the environment, that DNA accumulates in their surroundings. And the material can stick around, providing insight into the, what the creatures, who they were, that left it behind. So, Dan, maybe you could talk a little bit about that in this project to create this first eco-label.
0: Yeah, we... Uh... Dr. Cross is amazing. Um, Her team is incredible, and uh, this came out of the uh, seaweed symposium that happened in 2020. Uh, It was kind of a brainchild of that. You know, talking to them and and saying that you know there is no eco label for the industry yet that that doesn't exist, and you know we want to make sure that the label that we're creating, um, you know, is scientifically backed. It's data driven you know we there's going to be people that are just going to be handing out labels you know that's inevitable where people just say hey join our team and here's a here's a neat little eco label um and so we wanted to really make sure that there was an eco label that existed that was science backed and data driven um and what's neat is that it's the first time so our project it's a 5 year project we're taking an empty parcel of ocean and we're just studying it baseline data for the first year what is this ocean doing? What is it? How, how does it work for a year? And then, uh, subsequently, over the next four years, we're going to gradually introduce various types of aquaculture gear. We're going to have seaweed growing for a parcel of time. Uh, we'll have a select number of oyster cages growing for a parcel of time. And then we'll be able to see how the chemistry of the ocean changes when those. Uh, farming techniques are deployed and then with the eDNA we're actually able to count what's the biodiversity change you know when we put oyster cages down how many how many types of life does that actually attract and hold and for how long and that's going to really quantify you know how the good that seaweed long line culture does the the benefits that bottom cage shellfish culture creates And then, based on that data, we'll be able to, you know, look at a farm and say, okay, well, you have a hundred cages on your farm, so we know that it's providing X amount of good to the ecosystem. You you could go out, you could take an eDNA sample to confirm that, you know, the counts that are on the farm, and that'll ultimately allow the nonprofit organization to hand out this eco label. And but what's what's made it all possible is the fact that we started with a blank slate you know, every, every study that has proven positive ecosystem services has had to do it after a farm was already established. And so this is really the first study that looks at it from blank slate to, you know, the final product.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you hear all the time that if something's good for the environment, but I love that you're really building evidence, you know, versus, uh, you know, just conjecture and what in telling us really why it's so important. Um, You had mentioned before about, you know, your parcel of land and you're expanding it. I was just curious, Greg, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get the land for your initial farm and what was that process like for both of you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so long winded. I'm probably going to need some help from Dan on this one. Um, Our story is unique just because, uh, well, you know what? I'm going to take that back. Our story is not unique because this is still happening all over America right now. Um, You know, once you get your farm, you're kind of out of uh, the drama of trying to get a farm. Um, And when I mean drama, for us, uh, there are boards and committees here. And when we first started to try to get a farm, uh, we wanted to put it in a a bay, like a lagoon. And this is a saltwater pond that is, was, used to be fished heavily. And so when we said that we were going to go create an aquaculture farm inside of this pond... Uh, all the local shell fishermen who were on a committee were up in arms that we were taking their water away from them and that they couldn't fish, which is not true. So, you know, you're going to hear us constantly talking about these untrue statements, this uh, misinformation that people have around the whole concept of aquaculture. And so we spent a good two years Trying to get our site at that point. And then it was denied and put on advisement by the local governing uh, selectmen. We have selectmen instead of mayors, for example, we have a body of selectmen that make decisions. So the selectmen put us on advisement and said, uh, let's think about this. And when you guys are able to settle your differences with these fishermen, we'll, we'll reconvene and talk about it. Well, you know, Dan and I just wanted to farm, we didn't want all this extracurricular we just wanted to get out there and see what we could do so um you know we picked a spot in the open ocean and a big reason for that too was that local board of the fishermen actually uh, banned aquaculture in all the ponds within that that town of oak bluffs which is still a regulation today uh so that was a big kind of hit for us because the majority of aquaculture shellfish aquaculture sites are within a, a bay or estuary. I would say probably 90% of them are. So, for us to go out into the open ocean was kind of, you know, unknown and we had no idea if it was going to work. So, the whole process ended up taking about 5 years to go ahead and get the farm approved at our current site now. When we started, we had no idea if it was going to work because our site is very exposed to the northeast. So any, you know, New Englanders, we all know about nor'easters, right? Like winter hurricanes that just come barreling down 70 mile an hour winds. So we were really concerned about starting really big. Uh, So we took baby steps. We bought two cages and I think it was like 50,000 oysters and we put them out the first winter and one of the whole, one of the cages actually rolled onto the beach, which was not a good sign. So one of them stayed in the ocean and the other one ended up on the beach after a really strong nor'easter so we thought you know what those are good enough odds for us we'll keep going if if both of them kind of rolled up maybe uh maybe we would have thought you know this isn't for us but only one of them rolled up on the beach um which we recovered and put back into the ocean but it was a very long process and you know it's a shame that this is still going on right because once we got approved by the the town and by the state, the abutters actually sued us and sued the town and basically said, you know, we don't want this in our backyard. It was the whole NIMBYism thing, and that's really happening a lot today. Still, uh, people do not want to see aquaculture in front of their homes. They think it detracts from the value, which is wrong. Uh, there was a whole big thing about we were going to use chemicals to clean the oysters, which is completely false we were gonna dump fertilizer into the waters, which is completely false. You know, oysters get everything they need from the water by filtering it, zero input. And also that there was gonna be oyster poop washing up onto the shore, almost like an oil slick that was gonna cover the seabirds. Uh, You see those commercials where, you know, the Don commercials where they're cleaning off the, the ducks that are covered in oil. They actually painted that picture that that's what the oyster poop was going to look like on the on the beach. So you know a lot of misinformation. Um, Luckily, we were able to sit down and say, "Look, guys, this is ridiculous. We just want to farm oysters. Uh, We're not trying to ruin your lives. We're not trying to ruin your property value." And kind of the irony of it all now is we're one of the greatest. Um, attributes for these people that rent their homes. Our farm is right outside of their house. When they rent their homes in the summer, we have the kayakers, we have the paddle boarders. They all come to the oyster farm. They all want to see it. They all buy oysters from us. So in a sense, it's actually added value uh, more than anything. And like Greg mentioned, you know,
0: our story is not unique. There's a lot of farmers who are applying for parcels of ocean to try to farm them. And are confronted with the same problems of the homeowners, you know, suing their towns to not allow these to go through. Or um, the famous one is Bob Craft, the owner of the Patriots, uh, slipping into a bill for Congress that the ocean in front of his house be made into a sanctuary so that the oyster farmer could not farm in front of his house. Um, You know, so it's 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 a prevalent problem. It's unfortunate. Um I think the the 99% of it is due to a lack of knowledge of of how an oyster farm even looks. You know, in our case the homeowners thought we were going to build like an oil rig in front of their house, um which just is not reality. Um most people don't even know our farm is there. In fact, when we show people our farm, they don't even see the buoys that we have out there because they they blend in with the the whitecaps of the waves. And people really don't know that there's two million oysters growing under the water where our farm is. Um, that's how hidden it is in essence. Um, we have a small little work raft that sits out on the water. It's eight feet by 20 feet. When I say small, it's small, smaller than a boat. Um, and that is our office that we work on. It's solar powered. So that's our little office view. But uh, that really is our footprint. It's it's tiny. You know, we work out of a boat. It's like a fisherman. Um, it's really no different than how a fisherman looks. Our boat is a small 26-foot Boston whaler. So it's not even like it's a giant uh, fishing boat, you know. And this is, again, how you know 99% of most farm operations are. Um, they're highly organic by nature. We don't use any chemicals. Uh, like Greg mentioned, we don't have to feed the oysters anything. The food is there. We have no fresh water to use. It's it's the most sustainable form of protein farming on the planet. And that was what led us to our tours and to our educational programs and to, you know, after the lawsuit, when we got the farm, the first thing we said is, well, let's educate their children in the school so that the kids can go home and tell their parents about, you know, how wrong they were. Um, And the kids loved it. You know, frankly, the kids loved it. Uh, We've had their kids apologized for how their parents acted, which is interesting. Um, when you see like the generational shift, it really is the older population, you know, has thought a certain way about the planet and we have this new, new generation. Um, a lot of them are people we hire who are seeking out oyster farms to work on because of the good that they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, you hit the most important point is that there's a lot of misinformation out there and, uh, you know, people are misinformed and there's a lot of benefits to ocean farming and that the younger generation, you know, has educated themselves and they see it. And for our listeners who may not know, the adult oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. And yes, I said filter. And that's the beautiful thing about oysters, right? They filter the water as they eat which helps clarify the water and removes pollutants, uh, such as nitrogen. They're important to the marine ecosystem because that excessive nitrogen can trigger algal blooms that deplete oxygen from water and they create dead zones. So the oysters are extremely important. And I think if everybody knew the the work that the oysters were doing every day, they'd be more than happy. I'd be more than happy to have an oyster bed you know, around me as I'd get into the water. Um, It was funny because you had also mentioned how they traditionally grow, right? Oyster reefs is how oysters usually grow. They bundle together. But in such an oyster reef, they're a natural storm barrier, right? So they're a defense against storm storm damage because they soften the blow of those large waves. And as you mentioned, the nor'easters that we get up here in New England, so they reduce flooding and prevent erosion. So there's so many great benefits to oysters and so why I love having you both on the, sh- on the show is because we can educate people that are listening to understand, you know, the beauty and the value of oysters. And so you're, in spo- you're inspiring other people to jump into this now, right, as it becomes a common way of life. And you were the first commercial seaweed farm in Massachusetts. I think you used Connecticut's regulations and brought them into Massachusetts. Can you both, you know, talk a little bit about your struggle because I know it really wasn't easy for either of you to kind of be the first ones to get out there,
0: yeah. and 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 you did bring it you know full circle of like with the billion oyster project when that's what they're that's why they're doing that for the the filtering and for the cleaning and the tidal surge and everything. And you learn about that, and it's like, wow, this is incredible. And then it's the same thing with seaweed. Um, seaweed is one of the largest carbon sequestration. Animals or plants, they're not even animals or plants. They're actually this in-between classification, but uh, they're highly beneficial uh, to combat ocean acidification is the big one. Um, they they actually have the power to, to regulate the pH in the ocean. Um, so there's a lot of studies happening now. Like if you grew seaweed in a circle and put your shellfish in the middle of it, uh and the ocean got more acidic the shellfish in the middle would actually be able to survive it because of the curtain of seaweed around them protecting them um and that was one of the reasons we jumped into that too and, and with and also the need to have a second product um and so yeah it was one of these things where we called up Brent smith from Greenwave. uh we had been growing seaweed on the research permit with hui for i think we did that for two or three years um it was time that we felt like we could make some money growing seaweed, and the state uh, didn't have regulations, so we imported uh, Bren's regulations and HACCP plans and um, showed them to the DMF and DPH, and you know said we don't have to start from scratch. We can model what Connecticut's doing and and start there. And uh, we were lucky to have state officials who believed in it and and were willing to do the work. And so now we have multiple commercial seaweed farms in the state, uh, growing seaweed and trying to get it, trying to get people to even learn about seaweed and the health benefits of seaweed.
1: Right. And, you know, that's the, where I got to meet both of you. Uh, was the Sea Grant Seaweed Symposium. And, you know, you're, you've included kelp now in your 3D ocean farming. And so I'm just curious if you could tell the listeners you know, where do you take the kelp once it's harvested and who's buying it right now?
2: Well, that's kind of the unknown mystery. And I think we're we're really enjoying that. And I think that's where the industry is at right now is how do you make kelp the star of the plate, right? How do you introduce it into everyone's diet, uh, whether it's, you know, just eating it raw with some sesame seed oil or, uh, you know, as a seaweed salad or blanching it, putting it in smoothies. Uh, but it was really fun when we first started. Uh, we actually went, you know, restaurant to restaurant, door to door, introducing ourselves, dropping off free pounds to chefs. Everybody wanted to play with it, but nobody wanted. No, nobody knew what to do with it. And you know, as they started to play with it and work with it, um, they they really kind of embraced it. And what we found here is there is a very uh, niche nutritional market in a sense that. When we have seaweed, people are constantly reaching out to us. We want it, we want it, we want it, just because of how good it is for you, but also how good it is for the environment and that's been the real fun about all of this is we can all grow seaweed and we can all grow a lot of it. but really, what are we doing with it? And there are some companies out there that are making seaweed pastas or seaweed salsas. Um, you know, flakes are very common panko flakes, so you can you know, take a chicken or a fish and bread it with panko, and then that has seaweed flakes in it as well. So there are a number of things you can do. Uh, the other whole thing about it is the reductionism business, where you then basically kind of boil off the jelly and the fats of the seaweed and it becomes a filler for toothpaste and for uh, you know frozen foods, and it becomes a stabilizer. So, there are a lot of really important aspects in seaweed, but it's really bringing it to the middle American in a sense, um and, and showing them that one, this is a smart choice, two, it's worth buying. and three, it doesn't taste bad at all. I mean, that's the hard part is getting people to try it, I think. And once they try it, they realize that, oh, it, it tastes earthy, it tastes green, it tastes good, you know, and and that's the challenge is when you sell somebody here, eat this seaweed, it it doesn't really come off with that appetizing. So, you know, there's all these buzzwords now, see vegetables is another route to go. And there's all these other terms. So that's where we're at right now in the industry. You know, we're again, uh, we live in a pretty um, healthy community here where people seek out that type of stuff. So we're lucky to have that as a backbone of our business. Is this community, but that is a challenge as well. And I, I think we're going to you know, continue to try to push this forward with cookbooks. I think that's really important. Um, but it's letting chefs be creative, be artists. Uh, we can grow it. We're the farmer. Now it's on them to to transform it. You know,
0: that's where COVID really uh, really hurt the seaweed industry. Was we were making great you know strides into restaurants, um, but then when you ask a restaurant to survive on you know half capacity, if if that. Uh, they don't have the space to be able to to try uh, you know an experimental seaweed uh, right now. They're just trying to survive at the moment, and will be for probably a while to come. So that really was a big setback. Um, you know, we sold zero seaweed to restaurants last year. On the flip side, uh, it actually led us to dry the seaweed into flakes, uh, freeze it into smoothie cubes, and it turned out we sold all of our seaweed at the farmer's market Um, just by those individuals like Greg's talking about people who, you know, have come to research on their own uh, the health benefits of seaweed um, you know, its ability to boost your immune system. So especially in a time where you're dealing with a pandemic um, oysters, shellfish, seaweed is, is kind of what we should all be talking about eating because it makes you healthier.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And we did have that conversation that uh, it is actually sea vegetables, and that's how we should be promoting seaweed because it is so healthy. And you're right; it, you live in that uh, in the Martha's Vineyard community. Uh, they're they realize really what's healthy for them, so it doesn't seem so foreign for them to have, you know, kelp as part of their diet. And as we are getting ready to wrap up the show, I always like to give our listeners hope for the future. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're seeing that will give our listeners some hope and maybe what they should be doing.
2: Yeah, I would just say, you know, do a little research. I I know it can be cumbersome to sit down and think about the food that you're eating. Not all of us have the time to do that. But when you really dive in, you're going to realize that there is a big difference In food, where it's grown, how it's grown, and how it's affecting the environment um, that it's grown in, and so just make smarter choices. And it takes five minutes, ten minutes to look up a label or learn a little bit or pick up the phone. I I think that's worth it. I think if we can all make smarter choices with how the food is grown and the how our what food we eat, I think ultimately it's going to make big change. And I would, I would just look
0: at like human history where we were caveman hunter gatherers um you know we ended up farming the nile in egypt and and we learned about agriculture and it, it helped our society blossom and you can think of fishermen as the hunter gatherers of the ocean and you know now we're at a, a time in recent modern history where we're learning to farm the oceans um and what's neat is that we're building this new industry now um in a much smarter way than we would have done hundreds or thousands of years ago, so we have an opportunity here uh, to create something really beneficial. It can be sustainable, it cannot hurt the planet. We can feed people in a much better way that uses a lot less resources. We can use shellfish and seaweed to feed other animals, like chickens or cows, to help reduce their footprints on the planet. So it's just really optimistic industry to be involved in. And, uh, you know, it's really optimistic, I think, for the future of the planet.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I appreciate both of you being on the show to inform our listeners about the importance of 3D farming, and also for that message of hope. Uh, And I hope that you remember, listeners, that it's people like you are ocean stewards and our citizen scientists that need to push our governments and industries to join forces for ocean solutions. Our oceans are important to our species survival and we need production and protection to operate together. If you would like to donate to our program or if there's a topic you would like for us to touch upon or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to visit us at futurefrogmen.org. And thank you for joining us today and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what we do, you can check us out on our website at www.futurefrogman.org or on social
2: media at Future Frogmen. And remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador.
1: Thanks.